Hello everyone, welcome to CLD Talks. I'm your guest host this week, Victoria Barnett, taking over the reins from Connor, so I hope I don't disappoint. Today I'm talking to Jamie Hopkins. Jamie will be taking us through his journey from working at youth projects to becoming a lecturer and ESOL coordinator in Ayrshire College. He also discusses his academic achievements and his current studies within the field. I hope you all enjoy and here is Jamie Hopkins. So hello and welcome to Jamie. Jamie, do you want to tell me a wee bit about yourself and your career in CLD so far? So it's been a bit of a a long journey and it's not been a kind of straightforward one. So when I was 16, I started volunteering for Ocean Youth Trust Scotland, which are a youth work charity that deliver at sea. And I kind of worked my way up to being a watch leader with them and doing a lot of kind of youth worky stuff with them. And I suppose it was my kind of first insight to what community education might be. So... Around the same time, I moved to Edinburgh and started my first degree in international hospitality and tourism management. And I had this great idea of I was going to go into formal education and be a home economics teacher and be all singing, all dancing. And yeah, so I carried on that journey for three years. And I then joined a uniformed organisation that was local to where I was in Edinburgh. And I thought, that this would be great because I'd had the insight to what it was like working with Ocean Youth Trust Scotland. And going there, I had this great expectation of what it was going to be. And I quickly realised that it wasn't the community education style that was traditional in what I had known. And it seemed to be, it wasn't really driven by the young people. It seemed to be agendas were driven by the adults. And I just couldn't quite get into that way of working and it just didn't suit me. And I think when you start getting ethics and you start looking at what you believe and you start looking at learner-centred things, then you can start picking fault very easily in other organisations and places that you go and work or volunteer with. So following the end of my three years, I decided that I was going to do a total career change, that it wasn't for me. I didn't want to be go into formal education. I didn't want to carry on and do the honours year. So I came back home and I applied for community education at UWS is where you and I met. And at the time, I didn't really have a great idea of what was entailed in community education. I automatically just thought it was youth work. And when I went and met everyone in the first year of joining community education, a lot of them were youth workers there wasn't really a great diversity of adult educators, ESOL educators. It was kind of heavily focused on maybe participants who had came through the system and then was going to come into a community education work role. Can I just ask, because there might be people on this, especially with you talking about the focus on youth work, that don't know what ESOL is. So can you give a a little explanation of that for us, please. Uh-huh. So ESOL is basically English for speakers of other languages. So it's the teaching of English language. 
in, in the kind of modern day in Scotland, the focus is on teaching refugees and asylum seekers English to be able to fully participate in society. So it, was, it seemed heavily focused on youth work. And as you've heard, Gordon Mackey, who was on this um, podcast before, we had him as our lecturer in the first year, and he gave a great insight into that community education or community participation wasn't just youth work focused. There was other strings to it, which then started, started it, it, it let me think like this is not just a youth work career. You can, there's many places that you can go. You can look at adult education, which was um, literacy work or numeracy work, or you could go into community development or ESOM. So from the first year, I then picked up a placement with yourself and it was at um, Rutherglen Universal Connections. And it actually allowed me to see kind of firsthand what youth work was, because what I had known wasn't traditional and wasn't the kind of youth work, you go to a youth work centre, this is what you do and this is where you get out from it. And I think I got a great learning experience very quickly that it wasn't just turning up and um, going outside for a game of basketball or something. There was a lot more to it and it's actually a lot more stress. And the great experience of being at UWS is it allowed you to then go in and see each year you could go into a different placement elsewhere. So in the second year, I got a placement with um, North Ayrshire Council and I was working with WEA, which is a Workers' Educational Association, and they basically delivered ESOL on behalf of North Ayrshire Council. And it wasn't something that I'd really thought of because I was quite focused on maybe looking at adult education and going down that route. So when I got the chance to work in shadow an ESOL worker, it kind of opened up my eyes a wee bit more to be like, right, this is actually quite good. It's very similar to adult education. And you can see like the direct benefit that learners get from you teaching. So on my third year, I got asked back to go and um, do a placement with North Ayrshire. And I was um, directly working with adult education learners and working in hubs and doing basic literacy and numeracy and employability. There was a difference, but it was kind of the same job, um, just within different circumstances. And I'd started working with a young Chinese learner who was dyslexic and who didn't have English as his first language, but then he wasn't fluent in his first language in Mandarin. And it was quite a difficult case, and it was about a year working with him. And it maybe got to the end of the year, and he said, Jamie, I actually understand what's going on now, and I can make a basic conversation. And that's when it hit me that we make a real difference in people's lives, and the work we do is so important and you don't really see it because you don't have an immediate outcome. It takes you a year, it takes you two years, but the benefit that the learner gets is always real. That's absolutely amazing to see that. And it must be for you a great sense of achievement that you see a result. Oh, definitely. And, and I think what really got me to start with is that I didn't see immediate results. It wasn't like schooling where you go through and see something you get a qualification well done that's you we're not doing that we're working at the learner's pace and I think it was a little bit disheartening to start with when you're kind of naive to it 
that you don't see immediate results, but see when you finally get that result, it's like the most rewarding thing that you can get. So after completing my three years at UWS, I decided that I wasn't going to carry on and do the honours year. I then decided that I was going to take part in the Masters and community work. But the Masters was cancelled and that was out with our control and out with um, an ex-control at UWS. And I had an option to apply for four different other Masters programmes. And I think the one that kind of sat best with me as an adult educator was going and doing the Masters or the Masters in Education in TESOL which is teaching English to speakers of other languages. And that was a one-year programme, and it was run by Dr Margaret Allen. And I think I had a little bit of a worry going into this master's programme, because after three years, you have a set of values instilled in you, which is around community work and um, the kind of self-ethics you have. And I had a little bit of a worry going to another course that was maybe kind of teacher educator led and a little bit more focused in academia and education. But I was quite wrong because Margaret and Steve, who both co-ran the programme at the time, were community workers and they had the same ethics. They understood what was going on. And I think you can say you're a community worker, but you can be a community worker in the community. You can be a community worker in further education or higher education and still teach to the same ethics you would have. So after doing that for a year, I then secured a job with North Ayrshire Council as a community development tutor. The job changed slightly from what I originally had went for. So it was basically when I started off, I was working with adults. I was in libraries, I was in community centres, and I was working in employability hubs, helping learners gain employment. And it was a great job. I loved it. And I did have occasional classes, which were literacy classes or numeracy classes in the other libraries. But then the kind of adult education bit of it scaled back and it became more employability focused. And from there, it was kind of a natural progression that I, I wanted to kind of stay teaching and stay learner focused. So I started looking at the ESOL classes in North Ayrshire. I was doing my community classes for two years and then it became that they were going to look for core staff. So I applied for one of the jobs and I wasn't successful, which was a little bit of a setback for me because it made me think, what was I doing wrong? Was it something that I was doing wrong or was I just not interviewing well? So I had a little bit of a setback and I kind of took it personally when I really shouldn't have because it's all a learning experience. And then a job came up at Ayrshire College, which was a lecturer's post in ESOL. And I thought, great, I've got no chance of getting it, but I think I'll throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. And, and it's a great stepping stone because I've always been quite driven maybe to go into higher education to work. Um, I applied for the job and got um, an interview for it, which was, I was totally shocked by. The interview process was kind of, scary because I kind of had this kind of imposter syndrome that I was like I'm applying for something that I've never done I've never had any formal training in apart from my master's and I've done my community classes but is this the right step for me but I went along to the, um, to the interview and was successful 
Um, and I think after such a short period of time been in the profession, but having the values instilled in me and having the background, it kind of set me up for the job. And I think now I still have this kind of little fear of being an imposter because I've said yes to everything that's came at me. And I've been thrown in at the deep end with all my jobs and all my work. And I think this is what's kind of led me to where I am now. But the funny thing is, though, as a practitioner, if somebody came to you, both you and I would be the first people to say, absolutely, go for it, take a risk, take that chance. And sometimes I don't think we're as kind to ourselves, where we look at ourselves and say, you can do it, you know, give yourself the chance. Oh, definitely. And I, I, I would say to anyone, jump at every chance that's thrown at you. And I think I'm kind of a little bit like that. And I'll, it's a bit like Catherine Tate. I will say yes to everything. Yes, oh, yes, I can do that. Yes, that's fine. Throw it at me. But then the panic comes after. But I think unless you initially put yourself out there and step out your comfort zone, then you're never going to kind of take the steps that you would have done previously. So after being in post for six or seven months as a lecturer at Ayrshire College, a job came up for an ESOL coordinator, which was through the Pan Ayrshire funding. So the Pan Ayrshire funding comes from North Ayrshire, East Ayrshire and South Ayrshire and Ayrshire College. And that basically is kind of the central ESOL within Ayrshire. And they advertised the post based at the college for an ESOL coordinator. And I thought, I'm going to go for that. Even just been in post such a short period of time, I thought, if I don't put my name in for it, then you're kind of not recognised and you're not kind of maybe taking it seriously when another job comes up. So I thought, let's apply for it. Let's see what I get. Got offered the interview and got offered the post. And I was so excited and so thrilled to be able to do it. And then COVID hit us. And my post then got knocked back for maybe seven months. And during that seven months time, I took a post with a training organisation which works on behalf of the Scottish Government, delivering ESOL and adult education. And it was difficult for me during that because it, it, it really did set me back. So taking this job, I think I thought, this is great. I'm going to have money. I'm going to have a great progression route. And it wasn't. It, it very quickly became about numbers. So I was working part-time, I had a caseload of 300 learners and I was told each month I had to move on 50 learners. And that out of the 50 learners, at least 15 of them had to find full-time employment, 10 of them had to be in education. And I just thought, this isn't for me. This isn't community work. Even though it was advertised as an education role, it was basically trying to move folk on for um, figures and to gain more funding for the organisation. So I'd left them after four months and I'd sat for a period of maybe three or four months kind of thinking, is this for me? And I think the longer you sit on your feelings, the more doubt you have in yourself. But finally, my post started of August last year, my coordinating post. And you get really back into the swing of it and you can see, even though I started during a pandemic, you can see the meaningful difference that your job makes to learners. And that's what we're all here to do at the end of the day. 
And do you feel that now there's understanding of going at a slower pace or at the learner's pace, or are you still having to hit those targets? No, I feel that it's learner-driven now, and I feel true to myself delivering now because it is at the learner's pace and it's at the learner's need. Which fits in, as you were talking about before, with all your ethics. Oh, definitely. So tell me, how on earth do you manage to teach ESOL during a pandemic when you can't have face-to-face contact? I I think it was difficult. In the community, we responded by using WhatsApp. And WhatsApp at the time was a fantastic way of communicating with the learners and delivering a class um, because they were already familiar with the technology. Most of the learners or between the families had a phone they could access WhatsApp. Doing the class on WhatsApp was very different. You're relying on um, using the kind of recording and sound functions, dropping in occasional pictures, but it's not the same experience a learner deserves. It was a bit difficult, but it took some time in order to get the technology for the families and the learners to be able to get laptops, to be able to use them. And it's not an overnight fix. At the best of time, getting someone set up with technology who's never used it before is difficult, but doing it in a way that's not your first language is even more difficult. So it maybe took a bit longer to get learners using Zoom, using Microsoft Teams, and using that kind of platform in order to get a better experience. But in the college, we started off our classes online, some of them, so it wasn't affected really by covid But I think if you've got a kind of higher degree of English proficiency, then it was a little bit easier to get online. But there was a massive struggle at kind of community level to take that step to become kind of more technological proficient. And tell me, with your learners, how do they come to you? Are they self-referred? Are they referred by other agencies? How does that work? So in the college... We've got a very kind of close partnership with the local authorities. So most of our learners come referred through the local authorities. And there's a kind of great partnership that we look at within our community learners that they would look at maybe doing from pre-literacy level to national two. And then national two and above, they would then come to the college, which is a natural progression for them to start getting into formal education. Um Some learners come self-referred. They might have recently moved here from another country or they've realised there's massive gaps in their knowledge and they just want to come and kind of boost their level of English. So you've had like a really varied career and you've done different things along the way. Is there anything particularly that stands out as a highlight to you that you've really enjoyed? Yes. So the biggest kind of turning point for me and kind of what I was doing was a one voyage I um, was on with Ocean Youth Trust Scotland. And they'd done a lot of varied voyages and some of them were maybe private schools that had chartered or other people that had had parents that could pay for the opportunities to go sailing. And one of the voyages I'd done was with LGBT Youth Scotland. And they took 12 kids along and we'd done a week sailing voyage. I think it was from Oban going Mull and seeing some of the Hebrides. And the difference that that made to someone having a, a group 
where they could come for each other, where they could share similar stories, because these um, kids have maybe not had the best life. They've maybe not been accepted for who they are. And I think leaving that voyage, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Seeing the benefit, and not just a benefit, the real life benefit that young people take from these experiences really kind of changed my whole thinking. That was very early on in your career. You felt like that. That was right at the start. You really picked up on what community learning is. Oh, I think so. And I think that's what you need. You need that kind of trigger moment. And it might be very early on in your career or it might be very late on. Um, But I think kind of realising the meaningful difference you make to people's lives. I mean, we have the best job in the world. We work in all senses. We work across all industries. And we really are kind of change makers. And I know that CLD is really important to you. So how do, how do you feel that ESOL links in with your CLD standards? I think it links in massively. I think we look at, I think we look at CLD sometimes and we don't really see ESOL. We don't automatically think, oh, that is an ESOL belongs in CLD. But I think if you reverse it around and we look at ESOL, you automatically think of community education. So you've got these kind of two roots that have kind of different views, but ultimately it's rooted within CLD. And not just because some of our classes are in libraries, not because some of our classes are in communities, but because we are so learner focused and we're all about making that meaningful change to people's lives. A lot of our learners maybe have had a rough start in life. They've came from conflict. They've maybe came through an asylum process. And it is our job at the end of the day to make sure that person gets the best chance and another start and to kickstart their life here. And you are certainly giving it to them. You absolutely are. So I want to talk to you a wee bit about your educational journey we met obviously when we were studying and you then did your master's and you're now doing your PhD. Could you talk me through your master's and your PhD and what your areas of study were? Because they are very much connected to this. So when I when I started my master's, I I was kind of struggling to think how it all fits. A lot of the students I was on my master's with were maybe Chinese students or foreign students who have came here in order to answer English, gain the qualification, and then go back to their respective countries and be English teachers in their own countries. And I was the only one that was, I wasn't the only native speaker, but I was the only kind of native speaker that had a kind of rooted English teaching within community work. Working alongside kind of in the community and studying, I kind of seen that there was a kind of imbalance between the learners that we were moving on and I know we don't set timescales and we don't say, right, one year, you move the next level, one year, you move the next level. Because I think, if we look at kind of Shelikin says it's 365 hours of learning time to move up to being kind of at the level of a basic clerical job from having no English at all. So it's very hard to say, oh, we're giving you four hours per week. In one year's time, you can move on and be this and we can find employment. So I looked at 
the kind of how do we progress learners through the community system so almost being like a community graduate and then move them on to further education so they can then decide if they're going to be a nurse or mechanical engineer and move on further so I spent a little bit of time researching how to move on what barriers stop learners moving on and the biggest barrier that we can have identified was the lack of consist consistency so maybe staff were moving on staff were changing there wasn't a point of contact and it was kind of learners were past pillar to post and there wasn't that maybe the same experience that someone from the college would come to the community and there would be like a friendly face and a contact person so then when that learner makes a jump they feel kind of able to do it and they feel supported and they feel like they're not moving from something that's informal education to formal education because I know certainly at Ayrshire College myself and in Orsha have all been community workers so we all work the same and we all kind of know where each other's level sits so a learner should feel comfortable moving into a college setting with us because it basically they would feel like they're having the same kind of class and then I'd obviously got asked back by Annette. I'd had a conversation with Annette about maybe looking at further study and where the kind of further study would be rooted. So I applied for the PhD and we both have Annette as our lead supervisor, but with both totally different topics. And, and I think that's why it works so well, because we have the, the middle ground of it being connected to CLD, but we go off at different sides. Um, each of us so that's where the balance does work for us and I think we're both in totally under-researched subjects because I, I wanted to look at it from two points of view because within the university the East Old Department is in a totally different setting to what the community education ones are and I had to make a decision whether we go with making it centred within education and looking at kind of ESOL and everything that falls with that, or do we look at the kind of community side of ESOL? But we have the best of both worlds. We have a lead supervisor who's in a community education expert and a second supervisor who is ESOL-led. And I think having the mix of both, because if you have a total formal education, then you're going to have a different outcome. If you have a totally community-based one, it's going to be different again. Yeah, absolutely. So what is it, could you explain to people what your thesis that you're currently writing is about? So it's looking at the place of ESOL in Scotland and kind of where it belongs and if there is a place of belonging for it. So there's a kind of big change going on within ESOL strategy that they're merging it with the adult education strategy. And there's kind of two sides to it. People see the benefit and people don't. And I think I'm all for ESOL having its own strategy because I think for so long people have fought to have it as a professionalised industry and not just part of something. So even though it's part of CLD, it's its own kind of standalone as well. And I think with the merger of the policy, it almost seems like they're forming it to root within CLD and that's where it belongs and not really kind of seeing does it belong in further education and does it belong in higher education because all these classes are taught amongst the whole 
education spectrum. It's not just in CLD, it's not just in FE. So I want to look at where the place of it is. But then I also want to look at the diversity within the teaching staff. So I'm in probably a minority of being a young male ESOL practitioner. And I think that was one of the issues when I was applying for jobs is that maybe they see you as not having enough experience or they see this and see that. And it kind of brought up some interesting questions in the kind of diversity of it. I think sometimes institutions are trying to be a little bit more sensitive to the learners. Maybe there's learners that are coming from other countries that aren't maybe, maybe have the same beliefs and the kind of same acceptance as we would have. So there's a kind of reluctance to diversify the staff. One of the things that I picked up on from when you were talking earlier was about people in the future. And I know as a youth worker, one of the greatest things is, is when somebody comes back to you maybe five, ten years later and says, oh, look, you've had an impact on my life and things have changed because of you. Do you have any of that or do people just leave and you never see them again? I've had some people come back to me when I was working with an adjunct education and it might have been kind of very short courses that I've, I've ran. And I, from one that I can remember was... I was working with two young learners who were employed by a local supermarket and they were basically given the warnings because they were shortchanging customers, giving customers too much money back. And they'd basically been sent before, it was kind of the last chance saloon to come to me and be able to kind of work on it. And I did get them come back to me a few years later and said, you actually kept me in the job, you kept me in the right path and this is kind of, great what you've done for us but I think with ESOL learning it's such a long process that I'm so even though I'm kind of five years into ESOL teaching I'm still kind of very early on in my career and I don't think the impact is that immediate. What do you feel your biggest challenges have been along the way and, and have you learned anything from them? I think the biggest challenge is kind of finding myself really and I think a lot of people might feel the same way, that it takes you a while to really get into the flow of your work and being able to find your niche or your specialism. And I think that I've been in so many different places and worked in so many different um, avenues of CLD that I'm happy where I am now. And I think that, as I was saying earlier, you just need to keep saying yes. And I think you, you'll face challenges every step of the way, but you just need to keep pushing through them. There was points where I couldn't even find a part-time contracted job and you're working four or five jobs to make up 40 hours a week to try and make an income. But I think that makes you the kind of resilient person you are today. Yeah, I think for especially when people start out, I do think that's the case a lot. There is a lot of jumping about until you can find that full-time role uh, or the niche that, that you're interested in? You definitely do. You take sessional job, you take sessional job, and you just you have to take them on all different institutes or organisations or local authorities to try and kind of get that experience. And it, it's quite a hard life, that. It's a great learning experience, absolutely brilliant for learning, but it takes a toll on your life that you might be one place in the morning, somewhere else in the afternoon, and then you're picking up a nighttime shift somewhere else. 
it's quite a hard run to do, although so valuable. Oh, definitely, because there was times that um, I maybe had a nine o'clock class in Irvine and a 10 o'clock class in Coburnie, and then I was coming back here to work in Glasgow and then go and do a night class. And I think as, as hard as it is, and there's a worry maybe that your money's not going to be consistent each month, you need to take it because things will get better. And then you can bring all these different skills to other jobs as well. Oh, which, definitely. Which, which is brilliant. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to change within CLD? That's a kind of good question. And it's a kind of tough one to think about. At the moment, the only thing that I would change in this is personal is to stop the merger of the adult education and ESOL policy. And I think for two things, there was no harm in them being apart before. And they were actually quite good because they had quite clear sets of values. And there's this kind of umbrella that they're putting adult education and ESOL. Although ESOL is adult learners learning, it's not adult education because adult education would then have to cover further education because they're adults learning in a, an environment. So I think purely kind of for the professionalism of ESOL, I would change to keeping and having the separate policy. Tell me, who are your role models? Is there anyone that has inspired you particularly over the years? I think when I was first coming into the field and, and starting off in my community education journey, the kind of role model for me at that time would have been Gordon Mackey. And the whole reason behind that is about the meaningful change that he was making within, in his time of practice. So he discussed about kind of getting brought up on the east end of Glasgow and the difference that he made because he's seen the kind of divide within his communities. And I think when he was discussing kind of the changes in adult education and the changes that literacy work brought to these people, I think kind of really gave me that push and that power and the kind of inspiration to be like that when I get to the height of my career. Do you feel you inspire people now? Is that part of your role? Um, I would hope I would inspire people now. I think to show that there, there can be change in an industry that's maybe been kind of static for the last maybe 15 years. So I think maybe seeing someone who's younger, who's male, and seeing someone in my shoes maybe can inspire people to follow down a different pathway that they might have not necessarily um, chosen. And how do you measure success in your learners? Or is there something specific that you're looking for? I, I, traditionally in further education, we measure success by does the learner achieve the qualification at the end of the day? But I don't think that is always the case. We talk about going at the pace of the learner and being learner-centred, but we do have term times, we do have qualifications to meet. But if that learner is not ready, we wouldn't sign them up for something that they're going to fail at or they wouldn't feel comfortable achieving. So measuring success would be enabling a learner and for that learner to feel comfortable to pass that national assessment and to gain qualifications and move on out of ESOL and go into a cross-curriculum um, course and go and do something that they want to do and that will benefit their life. 
And I'm just thinking, because of the situations that people have come into ESOL and because of their lives and what's happened, I take it it's not just about you delivering learning and classes. There's more to it than that. Have you got more of a personal involvement and you hear about people's life stories? It's, uh, yeah, it's very difficult because a lot of our families come here and a lot of learners come here under quite difficult circumstances. So it's, it's really hard to kind of maybe separate the two when you you get you're, you're involved in someone's life so much and you know what's at stake behind that person in order for them to be able to achieve and to gain qualifications so I think there's kind of there's a personal gain as well in wanting to help that person succeed more and push them to their limits because I think this is our next start and this is our second chance so you want to do everything you can for that person. Do you ever hear about any of the stories about people that have come to you? Does anyone ever talk about it? I think there's a reluctance maybe sometimes for people to share stories because they don't want to bring up kind of past experiences. But sometimes you can find little bits out without asking directly because education, that learners might have not had any previous education in their home country and they might have had bad experiences if they were in a camp or if they'd been resettled in another country before they came here. So I think it's kind of vital to know people's past experiences without kind of stirring up past emotions. What do you enjoy most about your teaching role? The thing I enjoy most is seeing them succeed after all the barriers that have been in place and some through no fault of their own getting them that qualification, seeing that success and see, seeing them be happy in their lives is the thing that I really enjoy most. And what are the hardest parts of your job? I think sometimes having kind of conversation with learners about the reality of learning ESOL because it's not an overnight process. And I think some learners automatically just want to think that they can move on to the next stage or they could be employment. And I think seeing students get down about it is quite hard. And you see what they've been through and you can see how much they want to succeed and be able to speak to their children because maybe their children have a higher proficiency in English and want to help them with their homework but feel totally disconnected from that. It's, it's hard to see and it's hard to have the conversations sometimes and you want to do everything you can for them, but it's not always a fast outcome. Sometimes I, when you think of ESOL, you think it's quite a difficult role to get into. It's not as easy a career path as adult education or youth work. So what is the best way to get into your job? I think it's quite difficult to get in and find a job because it's a lot of part-time work and a lot of sessional work. And I think a lot of the industry at the moment is focused around maybe the Chinese market or the kind of Asian market. And we look at maybe online teachers and we look at people kind of starting off that way and teaching English as a foreign language. But community-based ESOL and ESOL within Scotland it seems to be quite difficult because it all kind of relies on funding and sometimes kind of posts are few and far between. 
And what's the, do you have to do a degree in it or do you have to do a master's? So I think it's quite difficult starting out because teaching English at home is quite a difficult um, industry to get into. A lot of people maybe start out looking at um, online English teaching, which would be might have been for the Asian market, and we look at um, Eastern European Eastern European countries, and a lot of that is maybe online one to one teaching, maybe with possibly younger kids. But you don't necessarily need to have a master's in order to teach here. If you're looking maybe going into further education or higher education, you would need to have a master's or a PhD. But there's alternative practical based courses. So you've got like your um, your online TESOL um, hour certificates, which aren't worth the paper they're written on. They're pretty much useless. You pay £60 for an online course, but it doesn't really get you anywhere unless you're going to go to an Asian country and teach there. The ones that you kind of need looking at UK based ESOL teaching is probably a CELTA or a DELTA. So a CELTA is like a six week training program that you get a training certificate from, which is kind of heavily practical based. And that is the kind of same as a DIP TESOL, which is um, a diploma in English language teaching. And if you don't have a master's and practical experience, then you would need to take one of them on top of like your kind of already degree. And what about you for the future? Where where do you see you going? Because you've done so much already. Where do you think this will all take you? Oh, so in the future, I kind of, I, I really do see myself in higher education. I see the benefit that learners get from community education, but then I would love to be involved in the start of people's journey in order to get them the same feeling that I have teaching and working as a community worker so I'd love to kind of kickstart people's career maybe inspire them a little bit and kind of pass on maybe the experiences I have had and I think that's a kind of great thing of it is that we're all different even though we all have different paths we all have the same goal and I think helping someone find that would be kind of a great achievement. So how long have you got to go with your studies till you're till you're done? Um, so we're only kind of kind of six months to a year in, so we've still got like another two and a half years to do. And are you I, are you enjoying it? Do you do you like the PhD journey? I think it's different, obviously seeing it in kind of COVID times, everything's kind of um virtual but now kind of restrictions are easing it's just great because we having a kind of walk and talk meeting with Annette and Annette has got this kind of great thing of saying that everything's going to be okay this is what's going to happen you'll do great don't see any issues and that kind of positive outlook is so infectious and being able to kind of carry on that infectious period is like I, I don't know how she does it, but it's something that I would love to then be able to pass on to other people. Yeah, I agree. I think that is one of the greatest things. And I often think to myself, if I can bring a fraction of that to people who I work with and that positivity and you can do it, then, you know, that's that's amazing because it's such an important thing to do. Because I think sometimes in in workplaces, 
this kind of crab mentality that everyone wants to pull each other back down so you don't need to put a lid on it, I think is kind of applicable to our kind of a lot of work settings. But within community work, we're all there for each other. And having someone that is so inspiring and kind of can rub off all that positivity is fantastic. And I think we should all be sharing that amongst each other. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So just to finish up, what we always ask is the advice that you would give to somebody who is starting their career in CLD. Stick with it. Take every opportunity you can. Say yes to as much as you can and just kind of be open to new paths. If you're very closed in your way of thinking or the way that you want to go, then I think that will kind of hinder your progress so just take everything you can I've said yes to it I never in my world thought I was going to be an ESOL lecturer by the time I was 24 I I didn't think this is where I would be but embrace everything that comes at you and you'll succeed great I think that's that's really good advice and saying yes to things often it's easier to say no but taking that jump and saying yes I think does make a huge difference Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think if I had said no to moving on to a different master's programme, I wouldn't be where I was now. Amazing. Thank you. So thank you for joining us this week, Jamie. And thank you for everyone who was listening today. I'd also like to thank Connor for giving me this opportunity. It's been really interesting to have this chat today. Don't forget to tune in next week and remember all the previous podcasts are available online for you to catch up if you've missed any.